Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast, just the usual word of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Hello and welcome to This Week in Financial Crime. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. After a relatively quiet week last week, there's been a decent pickup in activity. Lots of reports published, more sanctions activity, plenty on cyber risks to keep us all focused, and Glencore has received its sentence in relation to its English prosecution. All the major stories are linked in the podcast description. Let's start this week with sanctions. First, the US Department of the Treasury, Office of Foreign Assets Control, has sanctioned 15 Kordad Foundation, a foundation of the Islamic Republic of Iran, and which issued the bounty on the head of author Salman Rushdie. Rushdie has been the subject of a fatwa pronounced by the late Ayatollah Khomeini since 1989. The link to that story is in the podcast description. Allied to this is some research which has recently been undertaken by the Kiel Institute for the World Economy on the effectiveness of sanctions on Iran since 2012 and, for that matter, on Russia since 2014. In relation to Iran, there's been a pronounced drop in exports some 41% and imports by an extraordinary 83%. This impact has been said to have occurred even though there was no global consensus on Iranian sanctions and that they tend only to be limited to certain countries around the world. The link to the research, including discussion of the impact on Russia since 2014, is in the podcast description. To the EU now, where Serbia has been urged to join the coalition against Russia and align with the EU in the imposition of sanctions. Serbia is not a member of the European Union, but applied to join the bloc in 2009, gaining full candidate status in 2012. President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, has said this week, it's important Serbia is aligned to our foreign and security policy. Joining the EU in the end, this means sharing our values. Sticking with Russia, it has added the remaining British Overseas Territories, or BOTS, to its sanctions list. The list now includes many, many others. It includes Burma, for example, the British Antarctic Territory, the British Indian Ocean Territory, the Cayman Islands, the Falkland Islands, and there are many, many more listed on that. Previously, the list was limited to Anguilla, British Virgin Islands, and Gibraltar. To the UK now, where the Sanctions Damages Cap Regulations 2022 SI number 1092 have come into force. These set damages in relation to certain uh, court cases brought in bad faith. These regulations in relation to sanctions limit the damages to £10,000. The link to the regulations is in the podcast description. Sticking with the UK, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation announced on the 2nd of November updates to its current list of designated persons, Russia, and a new licence. Two of those sanctions, Alexander Abramov and Alexander Frolov, the Guardian reports, are believed to be known business associates of sanctioned Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich. The updated designated list is in the podcast description along with the link to the article in The Guardian. 
The license which was issued relates to Truphone Limited, which allows it to continue to make and receive payments for the purposes of telephone service provision. The license expires on the 31st of January 2023. Link to that also in the podcast description. Final bit on sanctions this week, and a story which links to a money laundering story which I'll talk about in a moment, and that is that the Solicitors Regulation Authority, the SRA, has released its anti-money laundering annual report. There's an obvious focus on money laundering, I mean the clue is in the title, but there's also some interesting elements on financial sanctions which might impact law firms. Law firms are, of course, at the front line in that some may, unwittingly or otherwise, become involved in sanctions evasion. Therefore, all those concerned should have an awareness of all parties involved within a transaction, including any beneficial owners, to ensure they're complying with the sanctions regime. Of the reviews which the SRA has undertaken, it found that 26% of the AML policies, that is the anti-money laundering policies reviewed, failed to mention the steps a fee earner should take to make sure that their client is not the subject of financial sanctions. The SRA finds this statistic concerning. Frankly, I find it shocking, especially given the prominence of sanctions in the mainstream and specialist press over the last nine months. The SRA does flag its thematic review and the guidance which it has published and offered to those it regulates. Now that will be of some use, but that doesn't render any of this any less worrying. Offered almost as an excuse is the following. The pace and complexity of the changes to the sanctions regime of the past year make things difficult for firms, or made things difficult for firms. Yes, there may be some merit in this, but that does not take away from the fact that firms should have responded as it became clear that sanctions were to be a significant element of the West's support for Ukraine. The information on sanctions is publicly available. There are some prominent legal bloggers who provide daily updates on the latest sanctions output from the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or they could have obtained email updates from OFSI or by checking OFSI's website. The information is out there. All that was needed, even in smaller firms, was a nomination of some person within the organisation to do a daily check as part of their responsibilities. It certainly would keep them this side of a prison wall. Now we turn to money laundering. A couple of interesting publications for those low on appropriate bedtime reading this week. First, the Wolfsburg Group has published the Wolfsburg Financial Crime Principles for Correspondent Banking. Not going to go into them in detail, but I have, of course, linked them in the podcast description. As if that weren't enough, as I've already mentioned, the SRA, the Solicitor's Regulation Authority, has also published its anti-money laundering report for 2021-2022. Some headlines from the SRA report indicate a greater level of activism. Seen this across the sector, frankly, so it's not to be surprising. All professional services providers should be active in their desire to combat money laundering, but it does seem that the SRA has been putting its money where its mouth is in terms of allocating what it describes as significantly increased resources to the prevention and detection of money laundering over the 2021-2022 time period. This increase has driven the raised 
what it described as raised supervisory oversight with 163 inspections and 109 desk-based reviews, although this figure does not tally with the handy infographic which is provided at the end of the report or the review. While this number is clearly impressive to the SRA, there is still some way to go given its supervisory responsibility stretches to 6,408 firms and 23,349 beneficial owners, officers and managers. Now that's a statistic I ripped from the infographic at the end of the review. The review indicates that this has given them an elevated appreciation of how the law firms its supervisors seek to prevent money laundering from a practical perspective. The inspections and reviews resulted in 140 firms being brought into full compliance with the law, with the most common failings being around customer due diligence, which, I mean, frankly, that's money laundering 101. Uh, so that was one thing. Secondly, source of funds checks, which is probably money laundering 102, and money laundering risk assessment. They were the three that were highlighted as the most common failings. It also allowed them to make 20 suspicious activity reports to the National Crime Agency, as well as making 51 enforcement actions, resulting in fines of £380,000. Links to the SRA report as well as the Wolfsburg Group guidelines, as I've already said, they're in the podcast description. For another story, though one which straddles both sanctions and money laundering, which will be closely related in any event, the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee in the United Kingdom has published the Cost of Complacency, Illicit Finance and the War in Ukraine, which is the government response to the second, the committee's second report. The publication sets out, as the title suggests, the UK government's response since the second report was published in June 2022. Technically, the UK has had, I think, three governments in that time. Crazy times. But this one expresses a continuity of policy, but that was always going to be the case. In that sense, therefore, the publication doesn't say anything which is wildly unexpected. The link to it is in the podcast description. A couple of final points Uh, Before we close this little section on money laundering first, the Institute of the Chartered Accountants of Scotland has published its annual anti-money laundering supervision report. If you like bright colours, you'll love it. Link is in the podcast description. Haven't read it myself, haven't had time, plan to read it at some point over the week. Secondly, the German financial regulator BaFin has ordered Deutsche Bank to make measures to improve its systems and controls concerned in the prevention of money laundering. This follow-up action is part of the regulatory sanction made against Deutsche Bank in 2018. That'll do for money laundering for this week. Now let's turn to fraud. Uh, Over the last few editions of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, we've noted warnings issued by the industry over how the cost-of-living crisis has exposed the vulnerable to threats from too-good-to-be-true merchants. This week, it's once again the the Chartered Trading Standards Institute, the CTSI, which issues uh, a warning of a threat, only this time it's to -to door-to-door fraudsters, or against door-to-door fraudsters. The fraud consists in door-to-door salespeople suggesting that households are eligible for free insulation under funding which is provided by the UK government. The, the scammers suggest that for an upfront payment, which can be reclaimed from the government, works can start quickly to insulate a house before winter strikes. 
Uh, of course, none of that is true. The article issues some top tips which would apply, frankly, wherever you are in the world. First of all, never agree to anything on the doorstep. Take time to think. Secondly, look at reviews but do not rely on them. They can be faked. Thirdly, make sure you get all the paperwork and keep it safe. Fourthly, use a trader from an approved trader scheme. Fifthly, always pay for services using methods such as credit card, debit card, Apple Pay and PayPal as this gives added protection. Certainly credit card payments over £100, but I think up to a maximum of £30,000 are protected under what's known as connected lender liability under Section 75 of the Consumer Credit Act 1974 as amended. And sixthly and finally, further advice on how to save money on your energy bills can be found at Home Energy Scotland and the Energy Saving Trust. The link to that report is in the podcast description. As I've said, CTSI has been quite active and this advice follows on from warnings about the cost of living crisis which we uh, that which they issued last week and which we covered in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. They're clearly concerned about the uptick around such fraud and they're becoming incredibly active in that area. In other news this week, the Financial Conduct Authority has published what it, what it will that it will bring two prosecutions for alleged investment fraud against five individuals who ran a scheme between 2016 and 2020. The allegation is that this was not a legitimate investment scheme, but the participants involved were using the proceeds of fraud to fund their lifestyle. The scheme, a so-called all-or-nothing scheme, has been banned from retail operations since 2019 because of the high-stakes nature of such investments. The five who have been charged with various offences, ranging from offences contrary to the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000 and the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, as well as uh, common law conspiracy to defraud. The trial is listed for the 6th of February 2023 and will take six to eight weeks. The link to the Financial Conduct Authority press release is in the podcast description. Now to the Insolvency Service, which has been busy banning directors this week. First, two directors have been banned for their part in a care home investment scheme which promised fixed returns of between 10 and 30%. There were multiple breaches of the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000, including advising people, significant numbers of whom were unsophisticated investors, to transfer funds from their pensions, failing to advise investors to seek independent financial advice, and lack of authorization to encourage investments. The Insolvency Service has also reminded us of the frauds in the bounce-back loan scheme, which is something we've covered many times in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. This time, a nine-year disqualification has been imposed on a takeaway food business for exaggerating their turnover to secure a loan of £31,000. Links to both stories from the Insolvency Service website are in the podcast description. To Italy now, where a court in Sicily has convicted 91 individuals of fraud relating to the EU subsidies regime. The European Union provides various subsidies to agriculture and to other industries. It was alleged that reputed mafia members and a number of white-collar professionals colluded to defraud the European Union of 5 million euros over seven years from 2010 to, to 2017. It related to the use of grazing land, some of which did not exist 
other than in the imagination of the fraudsters. Now to cyber news. You may remember that in last week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast that a new cyber resilience centre had been announced to assist small and medium-sized businesses in London to reduce their vulnerability to cybercrime. Well, the National Cyber Security Centre in the UK has announced it's hosting a webinar for small organisations on helping with cyber security. The webinar is online and will take place on the 22nd of November 2022 at 10.30am. It seems to be free and the link to the sign-up is in the podcast description. In a beautiful way that everything is connected to everything else, the BBC had a story this week about how cyber attacks on small firms are the Achilles heel of the United States economy. It's not a big story, nor is it a surprising story, but it is a reminder of the increasing threat of cybercrime. I've dropped a link to that BBC article in the podcast description. But we're also reminded that it isn't merely the small businesses subject to cyber attacks, although they are, or they may be more vulnerable, but the big guys will also face attacks since it's been variously reported in the US uh, this week that the US Treasury has reported, uh, sorry, thwarted an attack by Russian hackers allied to Putin. Well, I'd imagine most of them are allied to Putin. But sticking with cyber and allied to that story about the US Treasury facing down a cyber attack from Russian hackers, for the big cyber news this week, we take ourselves back to the National Cyber Security Center and the release of its annual review for 2022. The review is the usual romp through cyber threats, both in form and from whom, over the last year. The review identifies five particular threats, risks and vulnerabilities. First, ransomware, which is, it describes, a form of malware used by cyber criminals to prevent or limit users from accessing their systems or data or threatening to leak it until a ransom is paid. So first of all, ransomware. Secondly, commodity attacks. High volume, low sophistication attacks, usually involving phishing or other scams, often reaching citizens and small businesses. Thirdly, proliferation attacks. Increased commercial availability of high-end disruptive and offensive cyber capabilities and tools used by state and non-state actors. Fourthly, supply chain attacks where perpetrators access an organization's network or systems via third-party vendors or suppliers. And finally, vulnerabilities, weaknesses in an IT system that can be exploited by an attacker to deliver a successful attack. In terms of the threats from state actors, I'm afraid it's the usual suspects, namely Russia, China, Iran and North Korea. Russia is described as a seasoned cyber aggressor while China is becoming ever more sophisticated but targets third-party technology, software and service supply chains. Iran is an aggressive cyber actor while North Korea is described as less sophisticated than its competitor set using its cyber attacks to mitigate its poor economic status. In other words, they do it to make money. The link to the full review and the executive summary are available in the podcast description. Now, quick uh, story about market abuse and then a little bit on bribery. We're nearly done. 
Market views first. The Financial Conduct Authority in the United Kingdom has announced that it has started civil proceedings against the former CEO and CFO of Globo PLC. The case is that they made misleading statements that caused the company's shares to be traded significantly above their true value before the company collapsed in November 2015. The claim seeks compensation for victims. The claim could proceed despite an objection raised by the defendants that some of the evidence obtained to sustain the claim was unlawful. The High Court rejected the claim and it therefore proceeds. The judgment is available at the link in the podcast description. And now we end this week on bribery. The bribery story uh, now where Airbus has confirmed that it is in negotiations with the French authorities over bribery in relation to its activities in both Libya and Kazakhstan. There is, in addition to the fines agreed in 2020, or this is in addition to the fines agreed in 2020, and forms part of the ongoing bribery and corruption investigation into the corporation. However, the big, big bribery story this week, certainly as far as the United Kingdom is concerned, or indeed England and Wales is concerned, is the Glencore bribery scandal. Now, that's dogged the corporation for the last few years. Uh, Glencore, which pleaded guilty to bribery offences earlier this year, in fact, I think it was in June, is being sentenced and the hearing at Southwark Crown Court has heard some of the more eye-watering opening uh, uh, eye-opening or eye-watering elements of the case. The Guardian reports, on one occasion, an agent told Glencore to hurry cash payments because he had, quote, staff to make happy before Christmas, a reference to a bribe in Nigeria. On another occasion, an agent of Glencore boasted in an email that he had secured deliveries of crude from Equatorial Guinea state-owned oil companies after using family connections to meet the country's president, who has ruled the country since 1979. The Serious Fraud Office detailed how a Glencore trader on the West Africa desk withdrew a total of 6.3 million euros, about 5.4 million pounds, in cash from the company's cash desk in Bar, Switzerland, to fund bribes on 25 separate occasions between 2012 and 2015. Those withdrawals had to be signed off by senior employees, one of whom was a Glencore business ethics officer and the other who was a member of the company's business ethics committee. That, that committee might need a bit of a ho- an overhaul. In South Sudan, Glencore officials travelled by private jet to the country shortly after its independence in 2011 with $800,000, I'm guessing US dollars, in cash. That cash was falsely described as for opening an office in South Sudan, cash for office infrastructure, salaries, cars, etc., but was instead handed to agents who used it to bribe officials. Eye-opening stuff. It was announced on Thursday that Glencore will pay £281 million in fines as the price of what the judge described its sustained criminality. The link to the Serious Fraud Office news release is in the podcast description. That's it for this week's very interesting Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again, all being well, next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone. 